In this weekend's episode, three segments from the past week's Washington Journal. First, with the first voting of Campaign 2024 just days away, a preview of Monday's Iowa caucuses with Des Moines Register Politics reporter Galen Backerier. Then, Liliana Mason, a political psychologist and political science professor at Johns Hopkins University, discusses rising threats in political violence. Plus, George Mason professor and Politico contributing writer Stephen Perlstein discusses what he thinks are the root causes of political dysfunction in Congress. Hi, this is Rachel from C-SPAN's podcast team. And I'm Sean, a C-SPAN producer, and we'd like to tell you about Word for Word, our evening newsletter that I write each day. If you follow politics and policy, we think you'll also like reading Word for Word. Think of it as your evening briefing on Washington's most important stories delivered straight to your inbox. Find out what happened on Capitol Hill, the White House, and see video highlights. Join our informed community. Subscribe to Word for Word today at cspan.org connect. Go deeper on the day's important stories. Subscribe now to Word for Word at cspan.org connect. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. First, a conversation with Des Moines Register politics reporter Galen Backerier on what to watch with this Monday's Iowa caucuses. Uh, so the Iowa caucuses, for those that aren't are sure of the importance, it's the first state on the primary calendar uh, for the Republicans. It used to be for both parties that changed starting this cycle. So the Republicans, this will be the first primary contest. Uh, you know, candidates will obviously include former President Trump, uh, Governor Ron DeSantis, former Governor Nikki Haley. Uh, 7 p.m. on Monday night across the state, uh, registered Iowa Republicans will go to their designated precinct and uh, they will... Uh, you know, submit their ballot with their uh, presidential candidate of choice. Um, hopefully by the end of the night, uh, Monday, maybe Tuesday morning, but usually by the end of the night, Monday, uh, we will know how those results turn out. And then the uh, delegates that are assigned at the Republican National Convention are then assigned, depending on their proportion of votes. So this is the first uh, contest on the Republican primary calendar, and uh, it's a big deal for uh, just about everybody involved. So things are really ramping up here in the final days. And how many delegates are up for grab? Uh, oh, you're going to catch me hard here. I believe it's in the high 30s. I feel bad that I don't know it off the top of my head. That's okay. Uh, the, um, the Hill has this, uh, thehill.com says, Trump eyes evangelical vote as key to Iowa. I wanted to ask you, obviously, uh, Donald Trump, all the polls are indicating that he is uh, considerably ahead in Iowa and expected to, to carry that. Um, but what do you, what are your thoughts on the uh, evangelical vote and and where that's going in Iowa? Yeah, absolutely. This has historically been a pretty important base of voters for Republicans to tap into. Uh, sort of a lot of influence over some of the policymaking and some of the political discourse. Uh, we see a lot of courting of pastors, of evangelical leaders, of politicians who are really in touch with that base. Uh, we've seen a couple candidates really make a run at tapping into that vote. I think this time around, the candidate who is still in the race, who's made the most explicit appeal to those folks, has been Governor DeSantis. Uh, he got the endorsement of Bob Vanderplatz, who's the CEO of the Family Leader, which is one of the most uh, prominent evangelical organizations here in the state. Uh, but the polling so far from from 
us and NBC News, we've conducted Iowa polls throughout the uh, last few months, and it shows that evangelical uh, voters here in Iowa are still uh, far and away supporters of, of President Donald Trump. Uh, he remains, uh, you know, sort of the forefront uh, candidate that those voters are supporting, and uh, that in part plays a role with uh, with how he's still continuing to perform at polls and is expecting to perform here on Monday. As far as that that race for second place uh, between uh, Ron DeSantis and, and Nikki Haley, what what are you seeing? I mean, I, you, you mentioned the endorsements that uh, Governor DeSantis has been getting. Has that shown in the polls? Has that have you seen that the ground game there um, indicate support for Ron DeSantis? Yeah, the main problem for DeSantis this cycle has been that he has amassed that sort of top political class support, uh, the endorsements that on paper you would really like to have if you're campaigning here in Iowa, right? He's got Governor Kim Reynolds, arguably, you know, the most prominent and powerful Republican in the state who initially said she was going to remain neutral and then ended up endorsing him and has been on the trail with him. Like I said, he's got Bob Vanderplatz, a powerful evangelical voice. He's got a couple of prominent radio personalities that are really in touch with a lot of uh, a lot of uh, conservative voters here in Iowa. Uh, but the base has not responded to him in the same way. In our Iowa polls, uh, he hasn't seen very much movement. Um, you know, he remained in uh, second place in our most recent December poll, uh, but he has really struggled to tap into that. And and certainly his campaign has, and the super PAC that has done a lot of the ground game work for him has tried to tap into that. And they have put in a lot of money and a lot of resources and a lot of volunteers and door knocking. It has not necessarily shown out in the polls. And then when you look at Nikki Haley, that is more, uh, that's a campaign that uh, has really gotten a bump these last few weeks in terms of the national attention, in terms of uh, some of the more high profile political class and donors starting to look her way as the leading uh, Trump alternative. We've seen some polling in the early states indicate that she's certainly has some momentum. And while her own campaign's ground game wasn't necessarily as robust as what the Never Back Down Super PAC and, and DeSantis operation had been touting these last few months, uh, she was endorsed by a, uh, a network called Americans for Prosperity that does have that robust ground game. And they have been doing some door knocking in support of her uh, these last few weeks. And so certainly that has been a, a campaign that's ramping up significantly. And have you seen any um, uh, shift in the polls as a result of that uh, debate? between uh, DeSantis and, and Haley on Wednesday night. Yeah, might be too early to tell. Hopefully we get a couple more uh, a couple more polls before the end of the caucus. Uh, that was one of those where, you know, that was a big moment for both of them, right? Uh, the, the stakes are high for both of them coming out of that. This really is the final push. Um, and I think you saw them going after each other pretty fervently, right? Uh, you know, calling each other lying and, and mealy-mouthed and, uh, you know, uh, touting the URL for a website that lists each other's lies. Uh, that, that was a big moment for them. They have been kind of waiting to get on a stage together and really just go after each other one-on-one. -on -one. Remains to be seen if either of them can can sort of push above that gap and, and really start to separate themselves. We've seen a couple polls here and there that had Haley up by a few points, and then we still see a couple now and then that, that have DeSantis in a second place. Uh, I think it is going to be really hard to tell which of those is actually the real case until the results come in on Monday night. That was Galen Becker, politics reporter for the Des Moines Register. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, 
to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Next, Liliana Mason, Associate Professor of Political Science at Johns Hopkins University. She discusses her research on the rise in hyperpartisanship in the U.S. and the threat of political violence. We're joined now by Liliana Mason. She's Associate Professor of Political Science at Johns Hopkins SNF Agora Institute. She's also the co-author of the book called Radical American Partisanship, Mapping Violent Hostility, Its Causes and Consequences for Democracy. Lily, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. So let's just start with the uh, SNF Agora Institute. Tell us about it and what the focus of your research is there. Yeah, the, the mission of the SNF Agora Institute is, is broadly to strengthen global democracy, but the way that we're trying to do that is through um, research, through public-facing work, explaining things to the public, and, and, and providing advice to public officials, and, uh, of, of course, having um, increased quality of dialogue across differences and trying to encourage a more pluralistic democracy that includes all of the voices that are part of a, a of our society. I particularly study um, partisanship, polarization in the U.S., and, uh, and now um, attitudes about political violence in the U.S., um, and Americans' sort of acceptance of uh, higher levels of political violence and, and threats. Well, let's talk about that. Uh, here is a headline uh, from the Washington Post that says, violent political threats surge as 2024 begins, haunting American democracy. Lily, what do you think is behind that surge? What's causing that? Uh, so this is, you know, this is the surge in the new year, um, but this is not, it didn't just start right now. This has been something that's been increasing over the last many years. Um, in general, uh, we have seen larger numbers of threats to local officials, to elected officials all the way across the country. Um, this is, ha is having an impact on not only who um, stays in office, but who runs for office in the first place, because this, these, these threats have a real intimidating effect. Um, something like a bomb threat actually stops people from doing their job during the day. Uh, and so a lot of this is, is intended to disrupt our politics, first of all, but it's also intended to intimidate people from, uh, from wanting to kind of do their job in a way that requires uh, principles and courage. Um, and it, and this, this is, it, these threats can be an effective way to, uh, to silence people who might otherwise stand up to uh, extremism. Well, tell us about how these, um, the nature of uh, political threats and political violence have evolved. You know, you talked about threats against elected officials, judges. Um, there's also something called swatting that's happening. There is a series of um, bomb threats against state capitals. How, what's the traje trajectory here? So this is something uh, that we've sort of, people so basically have been looking into this um, during and after the Trump administration, a lot of the um, a lot of the threats have been to Democrats and Republicans who have opposed Trump, uh, and so the the idea of you know swatting, which is calling the police to to um, come to your house and telling them there's like a murder, and so like they come with a SWAT team, uh, it's extremely disruptive. It can be terrifying. It also can be dangerous. Uh, and there, and even just things like doxing, which is you know exposing people's personal information, it can take months to recover from being doxxed. Uh, and these are things that are, uh, they have been increasing. The the actual threats, um, you know, calling somebody and, and and offering a death threat to them has also been increasing. Um, and and it 
the, as these things sort of all the way through the Trump administration, but really with big spikes during times when Trump was being threatened, um, like during his impeachments. And uh, and then, um, of course, after January 6th, during the uh, deciding what the outcome of the election would be, there were a lot more threats. And we've just sort of seen it kind of continue simmering on. But it does seem to respond to times um, or situations when Trump himself seems to be under under threat of persecution or losing power or or for or some way that Trump is being insulted or um, or just or discriminated against in their view. That was Liliana Mason, associate professor of political science at Johns Hopkins University. Next, Stephen Perlstein, George Mason University professor and Politico contributing writer on what he says are the root causes of political dysfunction in Congress. We started out by asking him if the recent spending deal reached between lawmakers was cause for optimism. It's a sign of dysfunction. Um, first of all, uh, uh, you know, the, the fiscal year began in October, and once again, they did what they normally do. They didn't have a budget. They didn't have appropriations bills, so they did a continuing resolution, and they've known since the fall that that continuing resolution would be expiring this month. And what did they do in anticipation of that through the normal processes? Nothing. Um, they, you know, they dickered around all fall with uh, non-legislative uh, political theater like they have done for most of the last 10 years. And uh, so, again, once again, the only way to avoid going over a cliff is to have the leadership negotiate something behind closed doors, bring it at the last minute to the members, uh, and say, take it or leave it. And uh, the members have... Uh, really v very little input into it. it. It undermines regular order. That is, it undermines the process by which Congress has historically um, figured out what the country needs and wants, or put it somewhat differently, what the country needs and is willing uh, to accept. And that was a process that involved individual members with, with doing whatever they thought was best for, for their country, for their district, for themselves, uh, interacting with each other on line by line on bills and committees, and then, and then going to the floor and having the ability to amend that further. That's the way the majority was discovered uh, for what the country wanted uh, and or was willing to, to accept. So now it's just all from the top. And every time they do it from the top, it simply undermines regular order, undermines the committees, undermines the individual members. Undermining regular order, <clears throat> governing by crisis. This is a complaint that we've heard perhaps most vocally on the House floor from the Freedom Caucus and, and Matt Gates in particular. Do they have a point? Well, they have, their point is valid, but then what happens is they want the Republican conference and the Rules Committee to bring bills to the House and they don't want to let anybody amend them because if they let anybody amend them, a moderate majority of Democrats and Republicans would vote to amend them in ways that would make them less palatable. So in fact, the Freedom Caucus wants the Republican leadership to put a, their bill on the floor and not allow any amendments to it. And so they're hypocritical in that respect. You get into your piece in Politico uh, that we're focusing on in this 45 minutes about hostage taking. What's the difference between hostage taking and deal making? Hostage taking is connecting things that don't belong with each other. If you say that Israel aid has to be connected 
to Ukraine aid, and Ukraine aid has to be connected to border security. And these are three difficult issues, and they're separate issues. If you say that they have to be done together, then what you're saying is that the same majority that passes one has to pass all three. And it's a little bit like a Rubik's Cube. You have to get all three majorities to line up together, which is very difficult, as you can imagine, uh, in, in today's Congress, and not just in terms of the polarization uh, of the parties, but you know, on issues like Ukraine and um, uh, Israel in particular, and border. Uh, the, the, the issues don't line up strictly partisan. So if you force all three, then what you're doing, gonna have to do is what we just said. You're gonna have to have the deal made by leaders at the last moment and uh, put before the members and take it or leave it. You can't change it um, if they can do that. But it's very difficult to line all these things up. Would take each issue separately. What's the problem of doing it? Why? Because the people who are in the minority on any one issue don't want to accept defeat or compromise. So they'll use another issue to force their view on the majority that doesn't want it. You argue in your piece uh, the, the problem of doing it is also the parties. 30 years ago, parties were largely irrelevant to the legislative process, you write. For folks who can't imagine can't a imagine. time like that, explain. So um, I used to work in the Congress, as a matter of fact. I was what you now call a chief of staff to a United States senator at an improbable age of 24. Um, and uh, in those days, the Democratic Party went from Jim Allen of Alabama on the right, very conservative, to Jim Aberesk of, believe it or not, South Dakota, a Democrat, uh, who was the most liberal. And the Republicans went from Jake Javits, who was almost as liberal uh, as any Democrat, uh, to a very conservative, you know, Strom Thurmond. Um, the parties didn't stand, were not ideologically consistent. So they, the party couldn't stand for almost anything because the, the difference of opinion was so wide. And so Congress was able to legislate, but almost everything went through on a bipartisan basis. And for each issue, there was a different majority within the committees and then on the full floor. Uh, and they were always changing. And it's because you know, each of the pieces, meaning each of the members, was flexible and could go this way or that way on any given issue, and even within an issue. You know, on the various amendments, well, this part of the bill and that part of the bill, they, they, they did differently. And so that's how they put together bipartisan uh, majorities. That's the only way you could get anything done was on a bipartisan basis, because the entire Democratic caucus uh, in the Senate or the House, or, uh, they didn't, or the Republican caucus, they didn't agree on anything. You've watched Congress a long time. Was the mindset of members different oh, back then? Yeah. Was it, it okay to work with the other side? Okay to work with the other side. They, they, that's all they did. That's all they did. They didn't, no, no one took direction from the party caucus or the party leaders except on things, the rare occasion when an issue was a party issue. Uh, rare. Um, uh, and the majority leaders in uh, both houses, oh, they were like tra air traffic controllers. They simply scheduled things for votes. They sometimes encouraged committees to move ahead and do it faster or slower. Uh, maybe they, at the margin, exerted influence. But all the power was in the committees, and in particular the committee chairs, and the subcommittee, believe it or not, the subcommittee chairs. Uh, and it came up from the bottom. It wasn't dictated from the top. 
you know, you, you didn't know in, in my day what, what Mike Mansfield thought about an issue. He didn't tell you what he thought because he actually, he tried to keep himself fairly neutral on things um, for the very reason that he wanted to be trusted by his full caucus. Um, Tip O'Neill didn't impose his will on the House. He was a great leader uh, uh, of the House of Representatives, but he didn't impose his will on, on, on the House. It wouldn't, even, it wouldn't even occur to him to try to do that except if the president of his party asked him to do something. Then he might really twist some arms. Um, you know, there were rare occasions when leaders did that, like civil rights bills, uh, having to, things having to do with foreign affairs and, and wars. But in general, they let things come up from, from the members. To break this fever of dysfunction, uh, what's the first step? The first step is to get back to regular order. How do you... Do, How do, that you do that in a system designed the top down, okay. as you said, Here's there's no incentive the, from the top to change? The first thing is to, for a group of people, it could be the Freedom Caucus or it could be a group of moderates or some combination, to basically tell the leader, and it has to be a bipartisan group of, in the, in the House it would have to be 20, 25 from each party, in the Senate it could be, you know, 10, 15 from each party, to say to the leaders, no matter which party is in control here, when things come to the floor, you have to allow amendments. And if you don't do that, then we won't allow things to come to the floor. And because of the tight majorities, you need our votes. So here's, we don't, we're not trying to dictate an outcome here. We're just trying to dictate a process. If they would open the process up that way to allow bipartisan majorities to emerge on an issue by uh, being able to debate and vote on amendments, it would start to return to regular order. And I want to get to some of the and ways... And by the way, second thing, nothing comes to the floor unless it's been to committee. So don't even bring it to us uh, until that. If they would insist on that, then they could insist on getting back to regular order and insist on power being pushed down again to the members. The big question, John, is really why the members put up with this. They actually do have the power, and they've handed it over to the leaders. Uh, and I honestly, I don't understand, and I've been trying to understand that for the last year. I've sort of decided to, you know, spend my time up in Congress. I still don't know why they have handed the power over that they have and had. That was Stephen Perlstein, professor of public affairs at George Mason University and a contributing writer for Politico magazine. Hear more interviews from C-SPAN's Washington Journal program on our website at c-span.org, on the C-SPAN Now app, or on C-SPAN television, live every morning from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern Time 